Morning. You guys are on top of it this morning. Nice. We're going to be in Acts chapter 8. If you got your Bible, go ahead and open up there. Acts chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 26. While you're turning there, we are winding up. We're nearing the end of our series, our fall series called Y'all, where we are talking about the church as a community. And if you've been here, then you know we started off talking about how the church is by definition a community. Following Jesus is a communal activity. And the church is a gift community where we receive and give the gift of Jesus to the world around us. And then we talked about how as individuals, our identity is found in the love of the Father and in the community of his people. That's where our fulfillment comes from. We talked about as single people and as married people, how does marriage interact with the church? Last week, we talked about how the church is a body and we all have unique gifts to contribute. We all have unique parts to play. And today, we are talking about how the church, how y'all, how us interact with those who are not yet part of the church, those who are not part of the church. So a way to phrase that might be, how do y'all interact with them? Does that make sense? Not trying to make an us versus them here. It's just a turn of phrase to help us remember it. Um, But that's what we're talking about today. How do we, as the church, interact with those who are not part of the church? So Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road, the one that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch and an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace or Candace, depending on your translation. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of my being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing and probably confused. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Now, before we actually get into the sermon today, there's just something that this passage brings up that I want to address that's, once again, not really part of where we're going today, but it's worth bringing up when a passage of Scripture uh, introduces a topic like this. If you have spent time on social media or on YouTube, um, or if you, if you or friends of yours have wrestled with questions about Scripture or critiques of Scripture, here is one of the critiques that you'll often hear about Christianity as a faith. You'll hear people say that Christianity is a white European religion— and that it's the belief system of the colonizers. 
Now, that is a very common thing to say about faith in Jesus now. Now, that's one of those things that's got enough truth in it for it to zing a little, right? It is true that throughout much of church history, the focus, not in isolation, but the focus in church history, the people that we read are often white and European. That is true. And it is also true that many people have co-opted Christian language and used it as a weapon to do harm to indigenous peoples, um, to indoctrinate and acculturize people. That has absolutely happened. You don't have to look hard at history to see that. And as Christians, we should not overlook that. We should not pretend it didn't happen. We should not diminish it. We should look at that and with heavy and repentant hearts acknowledge it and learn how to get as far away from that as possible. It's also worth noting that when that has been done, if you look deeply at the teachings of Jesus, it is clear that that is Christian language, not the way of Jesus. Here's what's also true. From the first moments that there was a church, the Christian church was multicultural and multinational. From the very beginning, we follow the teachings of a Middle Eastern Jewish man who lived in the time of ancient Rome and we believe is the son of God, right? Which we should not diminish how wild of a claim that is that we believe. When we're telling people about Jesus, we should know how wild the thing that we claim is. We believe that it's true. But from the very beginning, the church spread into the known world. There's reason to believe that the, the Apostle Thomas went all the way to India, and there are some who, who teach, historians that teach, that when modern missionaries got to India, that they actually found people who already knew about Jesus when they got there, because there had been followers of Jesus there for generations. The oldest Christian church in the world, there's good reason to believe, is not in Europe somewhere. It's in Ethiopia, and it's directly traced back to the Ethiopian eunuch in this story. Some of the founding teachers in our faith. There's a guy named Athanasius who was called Athanasius the Black because he was from Africa. He's the reason we believe in the Trinity. He defended the faith against the most most preeminent and first major heresy to threaten the church because from the beginning, and especially in the early days, Christianity was always intended to be and has always been, in its purest sense, multicultural, multinational, because the kingdom of God has to, by definition, transcend the boundaries of earthly kingdom and culture and includes and celebrates what, is, what reflects the image of God in all nations and cultures and also critiques all nations and cultures. Sound good? Make sense? This is something that we have to understand. First off, so that we know how to respond, so we know the truth and the whole story, but also so that we can see when Christianity is misused and we can see that any time Christianity is connected to a unique culture or nation, that it is actually not fully faithful to the kingdom of God because our king is incarnated as a Middle Eastern Jewish man from 2,000 years ago whose kingdom transcends and includes all cultures and nations, every tribe and tongue. And that's one of the primary things that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, is teaching us when he tells us the story of the book of Acts, is that the church, the kingdom of God, transcends culture, that it includes cultures and nations, and it is a diverse people who are all loyal to King Jesus. All right, sound good? All right, that's my pre-sermon. That is not the sermon. Um, Let's pray, and then we'll jump in.
Jesus, we love you. And we are here today to hear from you, to hear from your word, to be formed by you. And God, I ask that what you have to say to us, that what's faithful to your word, would plant itself deeply in our hearts through your Holy Spirit's work, but that what is my ideas would be noticed so it can be rejected. We're not here for anyone but you today. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Are there any car people here? Car people? All right, few car people. Okay. Um, I really like the idea of being a car person. My dad is a car person. My dad loves, like, every time I go over to my dad's house, he's working on his cars in one form or another. He just loves it. I think he could have bought five new cars with how much money he spent working on his old cars, but he just absolutely loves doing it. Um, Like I said, I really like the idea of being a car person. I really like the idea of restoring an old car. I'm also a Jeep guy. Anybody else like Jeeps? Yeah, that's kind of hot and cold. Okay, I love, I love Jeeps. Um, I learned to drive on a 91 Wrangler Islander. It is the most gaudy, hideous, cool car that you can think of. And a few years ago, before Josiah was born, Jen and I decided to buy a car. And we said these words, literally, we said, hey, we don't have kids or anything. Why not buy a fun car? So we bought a cool lifted, old, bright red Jeep Wrangler, and it was cool. And listen, there is nothing cooler in the summer than driving a red Jeep Wrangler with the doors and top off. I mean, it is the pinnacle of the human experience in the summer. It is so much fun. Um, I loved it. Um, and this, listen, this car was cool. It was awesome. It was an absolute pile of rust. It was a junk heap. I mean, this car, but I thought, listen, it's my project car. I'm going to work on it. I am going to put in the time. I mean, I had this vision. I was going to lift it even higher. I was going to put a cargo net top on it. I was going to do all of this cool stuff. It was going to be my baby, right? But here's the thing. This car, this car, the parking brake didn't work. The speedometer didn't work. You had to ballpark it. Uh, the, (laughs) The radio didn't work. The uh, gas gauge quit working at quarter of a tank. I found that out because I ran out of gas twice. Um, <laughs> the, dr- the passenger side door didn't latch very well, which I found out because I made a left turn in an intersection too fast and it swung open. I had to strap it shut. When I had passengers in the car, I had to say, don't pull that strap. The door will come open. <laughs> oh, man. Um, the fenders were rusted off. I took this car on the interstate one time, once. And listen, two years ago, I got hit by a drunk driver on 85, spun around on the interstate, ran into two other cars. And I tell you that to say, still, the most scared I've ever been in a car was when that Jeep got over about 55 on the interstate (laughs) and everything started shaking. I mean, the whole, the whole thing was just going, do, 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 do. I thought the wheels were going to vibrate off of the car, and I was just going to skid to a stop in the middle of the interstate. I never did that again. Um, but that car, man, when I took the doors off, and when I took the top off, and if you squinted so you didn't see that the fenders were rusted off, that car was so cool. It was so much fun. But there were a couple of problems. Um, one was that a month after we bought this Jeep, Jen said, I'm pregnant. 
And I know what you're thinking. I know you're thinking a 93 rusted out Wrangler with no parking brake and no speedometer is a great, safe family car. And you're right. Um, (laughs) There's no way I could put a car seat in that thing. So, and here's the other thing. I like the idea of being a car guy. I'm not a car guy. I think it would be cool to be a car guy, but to be a car guy, you've got to be willing to like bust your knuckles trying to like break loose a bolt that's been rusted in. You've got to be willing to work in the garage at 11 o'clock at midnight, three or four nights a week. Like you've got to find that fun. And that's not fun to me. I don't enjoy it at all. So we did what every good redneck family does. And we parked the rusty car in the yard for a year and didn't touch it. (laughs) We bought a different car car that you could put a car seat in. Now, here's why I tell you that story. Because we're talking today about the posture of Christians towards those who are not in the church. And I think oftentimes, this is the posture of Christians. We look at the world around us, and we see the potential, and we see the problems. I think most of us, if you've been following Jesus for for any length of time, And all of us should gain a passion for the world around us. We get this vision of what it would look like if justice actually reigned in the name of Jesus. We get this passion of what it would look like if Christians, if people were motivated to do what Jesus instructed to feed the poor and care for the oppressed and stand up for those who cannot defend themselves. Man, we get this vision for what that would look like. And we've got people that we know. We've got people that we know that we see the pain and we see the bitterness and we see the decisions that they're making and we see these patterns in their life and we have a vision for what their lives could look like if they knew the deep love of Jesus for them. And we see all of the decisions they're making that are not fixing the problem, and and we have this vision of what it could look like if they truly encountered Jesus, and it motivates us. It's exciting, right? There's a problem in the world, but we have a vision for what it would look like if this problem were addressed, and we also see the problems in the world around us. We see uh, human trafficking. We see poverty. we um, We see starvation, We see mental illness. We see these things that are running rampant in the world around us. And we think, man, something's got to be done about this. Something has to be done to address these issues. And and also, we see in the lives of the people around us, people that we love and people that we care about, we see destructive patterns. We see unhealthy relationships. We see toxic decisions. and And we have this motivation to to do something about it, right? And we know as Christians, as followers of King Jesus, we know that if we're looking at the world and there's a problem, if there's a problem in the world, then the solution is found in Jesus. And I'm not trying to oversimplify that because we know that, you know, telling someone about Jesus doesn't necessarily fill their belly if they're starving, but we also know that a world that deeply knows Jesus is more likely to be generous in every category so that things like starvation and the injustice, people like the International Justice Mission have done a lot of work to prove that most of the problems we see in the world come down to injustice and that where justice reigns, that many needs are met because of the generosity that's intrinsic in justice. 
We know that if that were to happen in the world, if the gospel were to be preached and people were to be motivated to meet these needs, we know that something would significantly change. We have this vision and we see the need, right? If the world is my old Jeep, if the world is a fixer-upper, then there is a solution, right? Something can be done about it. We can do something to address it. And you might be thinking... That yes, this is why this analogy works. This a long story about an old Jeep and being horrified on the interstate. The reason that it works is because we all know that Jesus is the answer. We know that. But we also know that the problems haven't gone away for 2,000 years. We know. We see it. We were in New Orleans a few weeks ago, and we saw in the United States tent cities where people live under the bridge building habitations out of scraps, and that's where they live. We saw that in the U.S. We know that these problems exist. So it seems like the obvious answer is that much like me not having the motivation to work until midnight in the garage, that the issue is that as Christians, we often lose motivation. We catch a vision. We know the solution, but we don't have a lot of motivation to do anything about it. So that's why the analogy works. Here's the thing. The analogy doesn't work. Because people aren't cars. You don't have any fixer-upper relationships. The people in our lives are not problems to be fixed. The, the people in the world are not problems to be fixed. You know, we spend a lot of time as Christians looking for the right tool and the right tactic to, to fix the problems that we see in the world. But have you ever had someone treat you like you needed to be fixed? Did you like it? Yeah. You know, you might know this because you've thought this, but there's certainly someone that you know within your circle of relationships who feels this way. One of the common accusations levied against Christians that is completely accurate is that we are not very good listeners. We just try to fix people. We look at people around them assuming that we have the answer. So whatever they're going through doesn't matter. They just need our answer. When I, when I was in college, um, I, I dated a girl off and on for a couple years, and I've told stories about this relationship in the past, and it didn't work, obviously. It was not Jen. Um, and it uh, didn't work for a lot of reasons, largely because I was not making healthy decisions. I wasn't like great boyfriend material at the time. Um, but one of the things that I noticed after we'd been dating for a while, we came from different strata of society, right? Okay, once again, I, when my family went out to dinner, it was to a pizza buffet. When her family went out to dinner, you wore a tie. Like, we, were, we came from different strata of society. And I realized after we had been dating for a while that I was kind of her project boyfriend. Like, she thought that if we dated for a while, she could kind of, like, work the redneck off of me. <laughs> but it's in there. <laughs> it's not going anywhere. You can take the boy out of the holler, but you can't take the holler out of the boy. Um, yeah, it didn't work. The relationship didn't work. Um, but it's not fun to be somebody's project. It's, it's not. You don't feel noticed. You don't feel seen. 
And even if the other person has the right answer, it's really hard to engage with the answer when it doesn't seem like the person cares about you. They just care about their goals being accomplished, right? That's what's interesting about this story is that there were a lot of things that needed to be addressed by Philip, all right? This man is a, uh, he works, he's the head of the treasury in a foreign nation, which already would have been a difference. Now, there's reason to believe he might have been Jewish or a convert to Judaism, but he was also a eunuch. If you don't know what a eunuch is, Phil is a great resource to ask about things like that. I'm not going to tell you, but Phil might. Um, (laughs) uh, But his status as a eunuch would have met meant that he could not worship as a Jewish man did in the temple, that he was, he was ostracized from certain places and certain circles. There were a lot of things. If you and I, in kind of our typical modern share the gospel perspective, we probably would have come up to him and said, hey, I, I know your objections, I know your questions, let me tell you how Jesus fixes those things. But, but Philip didn't do that. He listened to God and he noticed what the man was doing. If you want a tactic of how to share the gospel based on the book of Acts, specifically this story, but really the whole book of Acts, it's obey the Holy Spirit and notice what's going on around you. Obey the Holy Spirit and notice what's going on around you because that's what Philip did. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. This is the whole point of this sermon. And this is cheesy. I know that, all right? But I'm going to do it anyway. We said at the beginning of this series that the church, that followers of Jesus are a community, but we're a gift community. We are a community that receives the gift of Jesus, and we're a community that gives the gift of Jesus to the world around us. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. So here's what I want to tell you this morning. If the church is a gift community, then our posture towards those who are not in the church is to be present. If we're a gift community then our posture is to be present. That's what Philip did. Interestingly enough, if you were to go back to the beginning of this chapter, what you would read is that Philip wasn't in this place on purpose. Philip had been in Jerusalem with all the other disciples, but they had to run for their lives because there was persecution. Philip did not run out of some noble obedience. He ran because it was safer somewhere else. Okay? A lot of times Christians, especially those of us who have a passion for justice or for sharing the gospel or something like that, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out where God is calling us to. But here's the thing. If God hasn't told you to go somewhere else, then where you are is where he's called you to. Wherever you're present is where he's going to use you. See, that's what Philip did. He was just there. He happened to be in Samaria in the verses before, and he was listening to God. He was in proximity to go to this specific road. It was nearby, so Philip told him to, so God told Philip to go to that road. Philip was just obeying where he was. He was obeying in his workplace, in his hometown, in his neighborhood. Unless God has told you to go somewhere else, the place that he has placed you, the place that you are, is where your influence for the gospel is. You don't need to ask God if you're supposed to go to somewhere else in the world. You need to ask God what he's calling you to do right here where you are. First, you have to be present to God. He was present to God where he was present, and then the Holy Spirit guided him to go to a specific place, to go to this place where there was a a specific person and just to listen. Do you notice what Philip did? He went to the chariot like the Holy Spirit said to do, and he just listened to what was going on, and it just so happened... The the guy in the chariot was reading from the book of Isaiah a unique prophecy about Jesus. 
See, here is a foundational claim for those of us who follow Jesus. It is a foundational theological truth that we need to understand if we are to participate in God's work in the world. And it is that you have never met a person that the Holy Spirit wasn't already present in their life. You have never met a person that the Holy Spirit wasn't already there and already working. It's a concept we call prevenient grace, where the Holy Spirit is working, bringing grace into someone's life before they ever respond to it, before they even know that it's there. They might not say yes to it. They might be resisting it. They might be ignoring it. But the Holy Spirit is already at work. In Colossians, it says that Christ is in all things and all things hold together in him. So every person you've ever met, Christ is already working on. He's already tilling the soil. He's preparing the way. There is a being, the Holy Spirit, that lives in you that wants your friends, family, and the world saved more than you do and is actively working to create opportunities for you through your presence to share the gospel. This is a foundational truth for those of us who follow Jesus. So we are present to the Lord and we're present to the world around us. We just pay attention to what's going on around us because the Holy Spirit is creating opportunity. One more time, we pay attention because the Holy Spirit is creating opportunity. The way that we miss it is by not being present, which for the record is the most common problem in our world today. At least for those of us living in the United States in the 21st century who are constantly distracted and constantly missing and constantly disconnected and hate it when someone knocks on our door because we don't want anyone to intervene in our space, right? Not being present is our biggest interruption, the biggest thing in between us and sharing the gospel. Uh, sometimes when the Holy Spirit, when we are present to the Holy Spirit, it, it happens in these moments like, like Philip. Uh, Jen and I were in India a few years ago, um, and we met a girl from Chicago in India. Interestingly enough, she grew up in an Orthodox Jewish community. She lived in Chicago, and she had never heard the story of Jesus. Most of us think that everybody we'll meet in America already knows who Jesus is. That is categorically not true. If I've got my numbers right, the United States is the second largest mission field in the world. Um, That is important to note. But we met her in India, and we got to talking to her, and turns out uh, just a few days, maybe a week before that, she had been up in the Himalayas, up above the tree line, and it was the first time she had ever done hallucinogenics. Um, And she, on acid, looks out at the field and sees a shepherd behind some sheep with a wounded sheep up on its shoulder. You know that picture that's in every small Baptist church in the South? She saw that while she was on shrooms in the Himalayas, right? Listen, I'm not saying hallucinogenics are the way to encounter God. That is not prescriptive. But the Holy Spirit will use whatever is available, right, whenever someone's open. And here's the crazy thing. We were talking to her, and she was like, I don't know. I I didn't know what that meant. It reminded me of Moses or something. We were like, you know who else it reminds me of? (laughs) Reminds me of Jesus, the good shepherd, you know, like the painting and everything. Sometimes when we were just present, we were just asking questions. We were just noticing what's going on in her life. And she's like, hey, here's what's happened to me. And the Holy Spirit had been preveniently at work in her life for us to share the gospel, but not just to share the gospel, to say God was ministering to you weeks ago, days ago, before you even knew we would be here. God has been faithful in your life for a long time. Sometimes it's these crazy moments where it feels like heaven and earth touch for a second. Sometimes it's not. 
about two years ago, when Jen and I were in the hospital for a miscarriage, I was in the waiting room. And there was a lady sitting um, across the waiting room, across our little kind of cubicle or whatever in the waiting room. She was sitting across from me, and, you know, uh, she had a mask on. I didn't want to get too close to her space, but a doctor came out and talked to her, and I could see she was immediately very distraught by what the doctor said. And I just said, hey, uh, I don't want to interrupt, but I noticed it looked like you might have gotten some hard news. Can I pray for you? Would that be okay? And, And she told me that they thought it was a routine operation, Turns out it wasn't. Turns out they now didn't know if her husband was going to make it. It was devastating news. And listen, I didn't walk her through the gospel. I just listened for a minute and prayed. There was nothing, no, no tingles, no crying, no one got slain in the spirit. Like, nothing crazy happened. It's just two people being present to one another, present to the Lord. But what I do know is that now she knows that at least somebody in the name of Jesus is concerned about her. This is how the gospel goes forward, is we are present. To be present, you have to be friends. To be present, you have to be present in people's lives. To be present, you have to not care so much about fixing someone's problems, but about noticing what's actually going on. And then you trust that the, the, the Lord is at work there. That the Lord, the Holy Spirit who gives wisdom to all who ask. As James chapter 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask God who gives it generously. The Holy Spirit is there guiding us, creating moments that we don't have to manufacture or craft or create. If we are present in the world around us. There's this wild statistic that I've shared here before, but the math adds up. And it says that if every follower of Jesus... Everyone who claims to be a Christian in the world today were to make one disciple a year that in six years we'd run out of people to make disciples with. And that's how the multiplication works. Obviously, there's a whole lot that goes into that. People saying no, people not wanting to be discipled. It's complicated. But the point is this. The gospel does not go forward through major events, though God uses events. The gospel was not intended to go forward through one person's work and a lot of sidekicks. Though God will often use one person. You might have heard me say this before. I believe that when God uses one person like a Billy Graham to reach millions, it's because he has millions who don't reach one. But the gospel goes forward by us, individuals in our normal lives, being present to obey the Lord and being present to the people around us, noticing the needs That's how we are not hostile. That's how we don't make enemies. You know, if you think the world is a problem to be fixed, then anybody who interrupts your plan becomes an enemy. Have you ever noticed that? If you've got a plan of how to fix things, then people that get in the way become the enemy. But if you know that God has called you to be present because his goal is not to fix the world, it's to reconcile the world to himself, then there are no obstacles of reconciliation. There are only objects of reconciliation. There are only people that God is trying to reconcile not people who get in the way of it. I'm reading a book right now called Beholding by a guy named Strahan Coleman. And in the beginning of the book, he says, as I beheld the Father, I lost my enemies. As I was present to God, it empowers me to be present to the world around you. So as we close in worship, I'm going to pray. 
but I want to invite you to do two things. First, I want to invite you to be present to the Holy Spirit as we worship. To just ask the Holy Spirit if he has anything to say, any peace to give. Just be present to the Lord as we with his people worship and bring him glory. But I also want to ask you to ask the Holy Spirit who in your life needs your presence. Not your solutions, not your answers, not your plans, just your presence. Who in your life needs you, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to be there to listen and to notice? Let's pray. God, you are present with us forever. Jesus, you came and you died so that we might be present to you now and in eternity. We could be reconciled. You did not come just to fix our problems. You came to reconcile us to you, to the love of the Father. For that we praise you. Jesus, teach us to be present to what you are doing in our lives. To be present to your loving kindness to us. And as we are present to you, teach us to be present, to notice, to listen, to not try to fix people, to not treat people like projects, but teach us to be present to what's going on in the world around us, that we might notice where you are already moving. We trust you, Jesus. Jesus, right now, I believe that there is a room full of people who you are using to be ambassadors of your love and reconciliation through their gentle, loving, kind, listening presence in the world around them. I believe that as we see the need and we know the need, we know that there is pain and there is problem in the world, that I believe that you will use us as we are present to be the balm to usher in to be vessels of your healing by noticing what you're doing in our lives and in the world around us. Teach us to be present to Jesus.